Hello and welcome to Chaos Effect, the podcast that's only purpose is to talk about stuff that doesn't make a lot of sense. I'm McLean Hirschfield and with me today is... Hello, I am Tyler Toledo. We are both film majors with history minors. Indeed. Uh, so neither of us are historians. We're just kind of like... <laughs> what? I hope to correct that in the future, but... Yeah, oh, getting two getting two degrees at the same time is not it. Yeah, exactly. I feel the same way. But today we're actually kind of talking about fairly modern history. Um, I want to specify we're not a true crime podcast, despite the fact we are starting with a crime. Today we're talking about the North Hollywood shootout. So, on February twenty eighth, nineteen ninety seven, it would start as a normal day at the Bank of America on six six hundred Laurel Boulevard in North Hollywood until two men at nineteen. 19- at 9.17 a.m., wearing body armor, wielding modified assault rifles, entered. This would be the beginning of the largest shootout in American history. So, uh, Tyler, yes. what you, th- I, I, you said you did a little bit of reading on this. What do you think of this event? Um, so, the first thing I thought of when I was doing my research on this, I'm like, wow, this is the intro to Grand Theft Auto V. <laughs> I, I thought that too. I'm like, it sounds. Oh, this is Grand Theft Auto. Yeah, it's it's it's, it's very reminiscent of that opening uh, scene with the bank heist. I mean, obviously that version was a lot more graphic. Um, this is like really weird because it's like one of those rampages, like that dude who stole a tank or that dude who built a tank. But it's also not because like it was a bank robbery, and like we'll get into it, but like. There's a lot to talk about with the backgrounds of these guys because these are two very interesting individuals. And, like, I don't mean to sound mean, uh, but these guys are, like, that type of person who thinks that they're really smart at something but aren't. Right. Because I, I, I'm, not, I'm not, again, mean to sound mean. They're not successful guys. I mean, you don't need to sugarcoat it. They're bank robbing criminals (laughs) yeah and i like me and you have politics that i'd say are set left to center yeah and i feel like in our spectrum there's a tendency to defend perpetrators against the police these guys are kind of just criminals like i don't think these guys had multiple attempts at reform and trying to go on but like they didn't so let's get into the background so the first perpetrator i really want to talk about is larry phillips jr um just very interesting troubled person uh he was played by a pattern of criminal activities in his life and he was born on april 18th 1969 he'd be the son of larry phillips senior a man with a checkered history when junior turned six he was arrested for uh police possibly tipped off by junior's mother dorothy clay for his history of being uh connected to organized crime uh, he would later be released uh, into his son's life again. And like most divorced dads, he would spend his time doing things like taking his son to wrestling matches, go to shooting ranges, and go camping in the Rocky Mountains. Um, during these excursions with his son, he had often expressed his distaste for law enforcement and the establishment. This would contribute heavy to Junior's behavior. So... What do you think of that uh, bit right there, that foreshadowing at all? 
it always comes down to a troubled childhood and a checkered past. America's history is defined by daddy issues. Like, like let's just be frank about it's, it. It 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 it's always that, and it's 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 really kind of hard. It's it's heartbreaking to think about how people can be so corrupted by their influences and how just some people are just straight up unlucky with their circumstances of yeah. birth and how that much like leads them down a dangerous yeah, path. Yeah, but like apparently he was never like poor or broke. They just he just had like kind of a scummy upbringing. Like that's yeah. like that's the weird thing about this. He was never poor or broke. So Philip's school career ended very shortly when he dropped out in the ninth grade to pursue his true passion to get rich. Um, and there's nothing wrong with dropping out of high school and like maybe getting your GED, but there's, I never found evidence that he got his GED or pursued any education outside of essentially ninth grade education. And I think that also says a lot about this individual. They assumed he could get rich without putting in a lot of work and towards anything else. Um, so he'd also meet his next passion in the following year, bodybuilding. He didn't just like bodybuilding. He was obsessed with it. He wanted to be a legend, like the next Schwarzenegger. He wanted to make him famous. Um, but if you can tell from the title of this podcast, we're not talking about, uh, famous (laughs) bodybuilder, Larry Phillips, Jr. Phillips would also become fond of get rich quick schemes, uh, watching many infomercials. In September 1989, he'd begin his own, his own criminal record. He was arrested for stealing $400 worth of suits from a Sears in Alabama. Um, in the same year, his wife Sharon Santos would become pregnant with his son. Yeah, yeah there seems to be a pattern in his life. And did, like this Phillips life line of kind of being a scumbag who knocks someone up and goes to jail. Uh, so this is the first time. <laughs> it was also around this time, uh, Phillips would befriend, it, befriend his potential partner in crime, Emil Masterat Matasarono. I might pronounce his name wrong. Matasarono. I didn't even attempt to try to understand how to pronounce it. I just saw that. I'm like, yep. I will be calling him Emil throughout this podcast, which is his first name, because his. I feel like I don't want to butcher his last name through the entirety of this podcast. Um, but we're going to come back to Emil later because Phillips has a lot of his own schemes by himself that kind of define him as a person. So on Phillips in September 1992, there's also a pattern with September with these guys. Seems. 1992 would begin his first big crime scam. So this was a very complicated and also convoluted. Phillips began his scam by contacting local real estate agents in Colorado. Uh, show they he'd go check out the properties. He would remember the code the codes for the lock boxes. Uh, he would purchase these properties, then sell them very quickly, and try to make it seem like he had purchased them and rented them. This is illegal to do, by the way, because like he was technically like leasing them or I guess, but it's very, I couldn't find a lot of specifics on this, but basically he was running a housing scam and it was very legal. So he would later get caught when a detective traced his dead mother's car back to him. Um, 
And he, he went to jail with a bail posted at a million dollars. His wife, uh, we talk, Sharon Santos, would take out their entire her entire life savings at ten thousand dollars to bail him out. This would put a strain on their relationship. Um, and however, he would leave uh, be- before he could be sentenced, knowing that he was probably going to go to jail. So at this point, he has kind of full circle become his father. Damn. So uh, that's, for the most part, that is uh, Larry Phillips Jr.'s early life. Uh, you have any thoughts on Larry there? Yeah, it's it's kind of crazy. One, one you it, it emphasizes the, the importance of education in one way. Uh, getting rich, I mean, th- this is just like... Um, you know, this is a, this is the American ideology. You got to like, you, you got to work for it. Um, and, and you can't, and there's so many people that, you know, get rich by pursuing their dreams. And there's a lot of people that drop out of school to do that. But it seems like he didn't have a plan. He kind of just thought it would just happen. And a lot of what you uh, learn and how you make how you build your career comes from you just absorbing more information. Some people just get lucky, but you can't bank on the fact that you'll just get lucky with no plan. And it's kind of it's 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 a lot of that story is just tragic. Uh, yeah, he's definitely like he's a type of person. I think like a lot of people, like you know the meme of the guy like the Kyle that type of dude. Mm-hmm. he's very like these guys both are very much like that but on very different ends but he seems like the type of dude who and like if it wasn't for fact he was committing crimes would be like living with his parents even though he didn't finish high school talking about like how he's gonna get rich off of, like basically a pyramid scheme and like he's just shotgunning like a red bull or a bang all the time <laughs> yeah um to me, the other interesting thing is like his first crimes aren't violent at all. Um, which like give it well, like we're gonna get into it in a little more when we talk about some of the crimes these guys both made together. But I find it very interesting. None of his crimes are violent. He really never showed any like initial risk taking or anything like that. He seemed like almost just kind of like going through the motions of things and just wasn't a good decision maker. So you ready to talk about our friend Emil now? I shouldn't call him our friend. He's a monster. (laughs) Good old Emil. So he's a bit different than his American counterpart. counterpart. And I said his American counterpart because Emil was born in Romania. Uh, He was an overweight child. Um, you know, generally like not very healthy. It had an epilepsy condition, which caused him headaches and seizures. And that's going to become important later on in this story. Or like when we're talking about the aftermath, um, his father, Viral and his mother, Valerie would leave the country when basic, I don't know if you know this, but Romania has a dictatorship. Yes. And <laughs> this is actually like, it's not funny, but it's like, his father's only job description was political dissident. 
which is not something you want to be if you live in the country with a dictator. <laughs> yeah. Um, they'd end up. Sorry, go ahead. No, I was just, I was just saying, like, imagine your occupation, like, you, you put that on a resume, like, oh yeah, I'm a political dissident. <laughs> what do you do here, sir? I'm an anarchist. It's our job. Oh, let me think of that. Um, now there's some accounts that say his mother was an opera singer, but again, this is all kind of he said, she said. Like, the thing about these guys is they were pretty much nobodies until they committed to their crimes. So it's actually really hard to find a lot of information about their individual lives and had not end a lot of it be confirmed. So I'm sure anybody watching this will probably be like, oh, you got this part wrong. Well, nah, I didn't have a whole lot to work off of. Um, so they ended up in LA and they had a large house, like a really big house, because you know how American houses are. Like you don't have to have a lot of money and you can live in a huge house. Yeah. Um, Emil really liked this and had a really big interest in big houses and like very fancy, expensive things. Uh, he liked this like American style life. However, this is kind of like the end of good things for him coming to America. He was the victim of a lot of bullying. I was a victim because, like, I couldn't think of, like Target, I guess. But uh, and mostly came to the fact he was overweight and he was also like very. He had a very foreign accent, so. Um, yeah, instead of friends, he would kind of do like many dangerous, the dangerous people to our society would go on and do in the future today uh, and got very fond of computers and would stay in his house working on them all day. Uh, he also helped his mother get her state care license. So she for disa- um for disabled adult care um, and I think some people I've, I like, I went to law forums and read it and talked. And I think some people read this as, Oh, uh, Emil must've been disabled or like been special needs or something. I don't think he was, I found no evidence thinking he was, I just think he didn't make good decisions and was easily influenced by other people. And we'll get into that. Uh, so Emil would only ever have a small group of friends in his life. And this is a pattern that continues um, till his death. Um, and his parents around this time would also have a falling out, which ended a divorce, which apparently had like the law involved with people getting arrested, uh, and they lost all their money and his mother lost her state care license. So it, like very tragic, like it, I think like, I talked about how Larry Phillips, he was like kind of tragically affected by his father to have a criminal nature because his father was a criminal. So therefore like he kind of saw his idolize his father. I think Emil was just a very unfortunate character here. I don't know what your thoughts on this so far are. Yeah. I, I, I tend to agree with that. It's it, the, the thing is like, number one, I said it earlier. It always, they always have a tragic backstory or a troubled past, but it also too, it's also money. This this dude seemed to have a lot of, uh, and both of them seemed to have a lot of financial problems, and obviously, financial problems. When you think when you think about what happens later, you know where you can get a lot of money, banks. That's that's gonna be a really interesting part of this story. So, um, because like I like you're onto something, but also it like kind of takes a three sixty with what you think. So Emil was apparently fairly smart he enrolled in devry institute of technology he chose to take a three-year course on electron electronics electric electronics engineering um 
so basically like working on things like radios and computers at this time email emil uh would attempt to widen his interest he purchased a kawasaki uh gpz 550 which is like a really fast sports like you live in new york right and yep. you know driving on the Tappans. you ever see those guys on those really fast bikes weaving through traffic all the time oh yeah like and you hate them because like in some sense they're just like like that you're driving and like you're changing lanes and one of these guys zooms i'm like venting <laughs> i shouldn't be venting anyway so he drove that um he also spent a ton of money to get like uh to get fixed up by a mechanic named kenny Beras, uh and one of the people that would come across him never really says much i, I wrote down his name thinking he would contribute more but he never does it's just he's the guy that happened to fix up his bike um but he wasn't good at riding bikes. He was often left in the dust by his friends and he wasn't described as not being good at by the people who rode with him. Um, he's like, so I don't know if you've had this experience, like, I don't know what, like besides filmmaking, like me and you are both filmmakers and we might kind of know this guy with film, but you know, the guy who shows up with like a new equipment for like hunting or fishing or golfing or even film and then sucks at everything, but he has the newest stuff all the time. He's a lot like that. Like, he's a lot like that at this point. Um, so in 1987, he finished his degree um, and started a business that there's not a lot I can find about this business. It kind of sounds like it was like a, he fixed electronics in his house and did some other stuff with computers, but there's not a lot. Like I, like I said, there's, it's very hard to find a whole ton of information on these guys. Um, and it's also hard to tell if it was successful or not. However, in this time, he'd also have a growing interest in firearms. Oh? Yeah, his neighbors had <laughs> reportedly seen him clean several, um, and, you know, it seemed like... I think it's a red flag for me whenever somebody's biography is... And then he had an incredible interest in firearms. Yep. <laughs> that, always, that almost always goes down south. Like, <laughs> literally um like we live in america and to anybody who's watching this like down anybody outside of america will watch this we have a problem with guns what <laughs> we love them i mean me and you live in fairly blue states well you do at least i live in like the reddest part of a kind of blue state was in 49.7 percent of your state <laughs> would agree with you it's scary how close that was my pennsylvania being a decider like it was should never happen in american history yeah i don't know who decided to give us that kind of power but okay just um, having a lot of people gives you lots of votes <laughs> yeah and like i'm i'm gonna be pretty transparent i'm a I, i've grown up around guns but i would never say i'm like obsessed or incredibly like like i know a lot about them but i'm never like cleaning my guns where my neighbors can see me one because i don't have neighbors too because i don't want to seem crazy like if we clean our guns we would put our blinds down because we don't want to like scare people because we like like we don't want to scare people i i feel like that's common practice for most people some people are crazy and i think this guy he won people to know he had this stuff like the motorcycle the guns um yeah, so good news in the time he had gotten bucks. guns his parents would also become more toxic in their hatred of each other and this would kind of affect a meal you seem like you had something you wanted to say what was that no i'm just 
that was like a private thought because it was just like of, oh, of course he has parents this parents have issues with each other this is like classic supervillain origin story yeah so his father won nothing more but for me able to go back to school and like get a full degree because i don't think he actually ever got a full degree i think he just took a few courses so he could learn how to do this stuff which not a problem with that i know a lot of people go to community college and do stuff like that like oh i want to do this so i'm just going to go to community college pay for that class yeah um makes sense he at this time also kind of started having really violent outbursts and i know what you're thinking tyler how violent could it be like did he punch somebody (laughs) one time he reportedly started swinging a chainsaw on his neighbor's face and what what do you think like is deserving of that right like you would have to do something really drastic to cause that take a guess please it's got to be really silly his dog his neighbor's dog walked on his lawn that's sillier than Emil's out here swinging the chainsaw around like the doom guy because like somebody's poodle like might have peed on his yard and just imagine um the scene in uh texas chainsaw massacre where leatherface is just like dancing around this chainsaw oh like that ending scene yeah <laughs> i'm like imagining just being the neighbor across the street who's like drinking your coffee waking up and you're looking out your front porch and you just see one neighbor waving a chainsaw there a guy like kind of holding his dog running away like <laughs> i need to get out of this neighborhood <laughs> see in, in my head i'm like like oh maybe his like car was like parked in the wrong spot or something <laughs> anyway so emil started getting interested in getting in shape and would start going to gold's gym guess who he met at gold's gym is that larry larry phillips um so and they had become friends sharing a lot of interest like guns you know so after Phillips pulled his housing scheme in Colorado, he'd spend some time with Emil, and we will get into that in a minute. But so what do you think of Emil's backstory and tendencies from what we've gone into so far before we get into some more stuff starting? Because I'd say this is the last point where maybe there was turning back points for any of them. Pretty much ever here, they went on a course to do what they would do. Like this is definitely the turning point meeting each other and it really makes sense that these two would be friends it didn't or does it does yeah like they, they seem to have they're di- they're different enough but they have the the amount of shared interests that they have and a lot of their uh backstories coincide so i'm i'm re- i'm very not su- surprised that these two would grow close and given their history of um crime and violence yeah yeah despite that that relationship grows and despite the fact that philip seemed more criminally inclined it seemed like emil was more violently inclined in his life yeah like i said twinking shades all around in your neighbor's face there's there's a symbiotic relationship one yeah. or one influences the other and it just grows so this is the last part about Emil's life and i think this part really kind of shows the effect that meeting phillips would have so after this he'd go back to romania uh to bring his grandmother back to america uh this is where he met his wife christina um who'd mother his son now apparently phillips and again this is one of those things where i saw some sources said this did happen some that said didn't but I kind of believe this happened given the effect Phillips had on Emile's life. Apparently Phillips pressured Emile to marry her 
but I can't find, like I said, I can't find much proof that this actually happened. So apparently it's like, oh yeah, you need to marry a Romanian woman. You should definitely marry a Romanian woman, which seemed really weird to me. But it also is like, I don't know if you've ever talked to kind of a rednecky scumbag. Yeah. And I kind of believe Phillips was one of those guys. And I could definitely imagine somebody like him saying that. It's like, yeah, you're this insert background here. You need to marry somebody from there. Like, okay. I don't know why you feel that, but okay. Um, you have a kind of normal stints of life, except he wouldn't because now he knew Larry Phillips. So let's talk about their criminal history record before they committed the big one. So, you know, the two kind of ran off together after Phillips, like, hey, I committed some crime. We need to get the fuck out. Um, so on 1993, July 20th, the two robbed a first bank armored car um, in Colorado. No one was killed. And so, yeah, we'll talk about like their like overall death tally at the end of the episode. But this point, no, no one was killed here. The two pulled over at, would later be pulled over at a gas station after trying to flee from the police. Um, essentially just like they so it was a rental car and it came up with suspicious plates being linked to this crime phillips was asked for his license but didn't want to give up the cop his license because you know phillips was a felon emil would claim the car belonged to phillips mother which was a lie because it was a thunderbird they'd rented the cop knew this was also a lie i want to say because he ran their plates like, I don't know if you know this, but cops can just do that really easily. It doesn't take them a whole lot. And it's like, oh, this is a rental, this. Uh, so he told them, you know, as cops do, get out of the car, especially when they think you're doing shady shit. Uh, he found both men were both armed with Glock 17s. Uh, and they would both be arrested. Um, real quick note about the Glock 17. I, I don't know if you've ever heard this myth, but there's a myth that the Glock 17 is called the Glock 17 because it holds 17 rounds. It's not. That's just the model number. It has nothing to do with it holding 17 rounds. Yeah, I've, I've never heard the, that myth, but all guns have, or not, I don't know about all guns, but most guns that I know have like some random number at the end, and I've never assumed that, that it was the ammo count. So the fact that the that myth exists is interesting because i never even would have considered that it's up there with things i hear like oh uh, you know ar doesn't sound for assault rifle yeah but it's kind of become that nomenclature yeah. um so <laughs> this car search is in by far the far more interesting than their arrest in the car they find a polytech semi-automatic rifle a noricano mac 90 which is like a chinese made gun um, a semi-auto rifle, a Springfield uh, pistol, forty-five, a Colt forty-five, one thousand six hundred forty-nine rounds of seven point six two ammunition, nine hundred sixty-seven rounds of hollow point ammunition. So, uh, and also three hundred fifty-seven rounds of forty-five ammunition. So, do you know the nickname for hollow points? I don't. The cop killer round. It's actually illegal in a lot of states because oh. of that. So hollow points, basically what they do is they have, uh, they're hollowed out on the tip because they're meant to expand once they hit their right. target versus full metal jackets, which pierce through things. So when they expand, they kind of explode, making it, there's no exit wound. Instead, you just have this really big entry wound mm -hmm. um, because of that, like they were used by criminals specifically to kill cops. So that's their nickname. So really interesting thing that comes up later. Um six smoke bombs they also found two improvised explosive devices 
a gas mask, two sets of body armor, uh, two programmable, uh, programmable radio scanners with earpieces, sunglasses, gloves, wigs, ski mask, and a stopwatch. They also found two gray, gray Kansas spray paint, basically, with three different license plates and a sum of uh, $1,620, which I don't know if they had purchased other stuff after the robbery, but it doesn't seem like it's worth that much to rob something if that, like you spent so much money on all this other stuff, the, the money you gain doesn't seem to be be that much worth it. Yeah, I mean, d- dudes were absolutely strapped, so. Yeah, like, that's a lot. <laughs> it honestly seems more like a long-term investment. Like, Yeah, I think you're right about that. I'm right back at it. <laughs> I think they pl- I think they got a lot caught a lot earlier than they thought they would because, yeah. like I said, they had license plates that changed on that. I think that paint was to spray the car so they can, you know, keep reusing the car. Um, so on October 26th, six, the same year, both men were charged with robbery and uh, firearm-related charges because, like, there's a lot of laws about having guns, like illegally modified to fully automatic rifles. Um, however, the charge of Grand Theft Auto was dropped in court. I don't know why, but just said it was. Um, Philip spent 990 days in prison while Emil only did 71 each men received 36 days of probation and that's the end of the story they've learned their lessons and nothing bad ever happened again nope nothing <laughs> on no. july 14th 1995 around 12 25 p.m the two men would rob another brink's car this time they would kill the driver um and leave the other guard injured so i'm gonna say something the Brinks driver here is the only confirmed kill they would ever have in their criminal history. And I think this is really interesting because I, I know I said earlier that meeting Phillips was the turning point for Emil, but I think this was the turning point for both of them because I don't know if they intended on killing somebody. I mean, I don't know. It's hard to tell. Uh, Like, the fact that they probably could have killed that cop who pulled them over or the guys in the first robbery really makes me think um, they weren't like out for blood. I also do want to mention at this time, there was another robbery, armored truck robbery they can committed. Um, both drivers were fine, but I don't think it was them this time because it was a very different kind of car than was used in their other crimes. Um, in 1996, on May 2nd, they would graduate to bank robbery when they would storm a Bank of America in Los Angeles before 10 and stole $755,000 worth of, uh, you know, $1,000. Um, they would rob So that's their first bait. Like that, as you can tell, that's a big increase. They do this again um robbing another bank of america uh this time getting away with almost eight hundred thousand dollars and injuring the two bank tellers um now hold on before we get into the so the thing is they were getting close to two million dollars and they expected to make hit around a million dollars per robbery but banks don't actually keep a lot of cash because they get robbed 
Um, and we're going to talk about why Friday is a significant day for robbing a bank in a moment. Um, but first, I kind of want to talk about so like bank robbery is a really big crime. Um, and banks have like well, let's talk about the logistics of how banks work for a second here. <laughs> So when bank robberies start happening and they don't catch the person the first time, banks start taking precautions. Like Tyler, are you familiar with any of this here? Um, no, I not really actually. Um, the only the only knowledge I have of like actual bank robberies robberies comes from movies. So obviously that's not the most informed uh, stance to have. Yeah. So one thing banks do is they move the days which they move money so like if somebody robs them on a repeat day they get less money the other thing they do is they take precautions like make sure people don't have certain keys at the bank um and usually standard procedure is to hand over the money because you have insurance when you keep your money in a bank and so does that bank so as weird as it sounds it's not like bank robbery is bad but it's also not like people are heavily affected by this um and the other thing they do is they start taking precautions like leaving die packs in money and we'll get back to that later so let's talk about the preparation for the big one two men had recon the bank of america on 666 um not 666 on I grab. I don't have the name in front of me. <laughs> Laurel Boulevard extensively. These guys were really kind of. They wanted to do this right. They thought this was going to be their big one. I think it, it's really important to say they thought that this was going to be the one that made them like really rich. Considering what would happen. Um, so. They had a pretty extensive list. They had an HK-91, two Norcano Type 56 rifles, which is basically like a Chinese AK-47. Um, a Bushmaster XM-15 Disipurator, uh, all of which were legally converted to fire fully automatic. They also had homemade bombs using jars of gasoline that they were going to use to destroy the evidence for in the car that they were going to use. Um, both had bulletproof vests. Phillips had a groin protector too, and some other armor he had made, made himself. Uh, Emil did not have some of the extra armor. Both of them were wearing ski masks with like a modified gas mask thing in them. They also had sewn watches into their gloves, which I guess I kind of get that he did that, but I also kind of like, if you had your watch here, I don't think that makes a difference. Maybe it's just cause he didn't want, I, I, I don't know why they did that, but I think maybe it was like a weird it's creative. Yeah, it's creative, but <laughs> anyway. Um, so 9.17 a.m. would be the first report of the both men entering. These guys aren't stealthy. Like their MO was they were heavy hitters. They came in with a lot of firepower and they were leaving with a lot of firepower. They would force customers back into the bank. They were trying to leave, like, you know, people at the ATM. Like you go to your bank, you know how like the ATM sometimes is like, not exactly inside but not exactly outside it's like in that right. like well they have like a little like special area just for the atm mm -hmm. so they would like the people there were getting forced inside by these two guys 
um one guard was like kind of forced down the ground and he like called for the other guard who just happened to be on like break outside uh to call the police which he did and the police revived on scene with possible 211 in progress which is code for the now like i feel like it's stupid to say this but like things like 211 mean something different in every area so like when you please use codes they usually use it specific to their district or county or city so 211 in this case is a bank robbery in process um so phillips was kind of taking the role of the leader which i think was the dynamic yelling this is a fucking hold up uh emil fired into the ceiling uh both of them would then sh- you know they were trying to scare the crowd because like you want that control in a bank robbery not that you should ever rob a bank please nobody rob a bank who listens to this um they shot the bulletproof door open which i feel like is kind of like saying yeah so the uh, tow truck flipped over or yeah the fire station's on fire the bulletproof door was meant to stop some handgun rounds like have you ever been to a bank Yes, I've been to a bank. <laughs> that was a stupid question. <laughs> but like you ever like I feel like you you live in New York, so you probably see a bit more of this where there's like the bulletproof glass and the thing that you can like only kind of fit your hand in. And then there's like the door that like only locks from the inside. Um, I think I know what you're talking about, but uh in in the pandemic world, I haven't been outside. <laughs> so it's been a it's been a while since I've been to a bank. I haven't been inside a bank, but I just have like a photographic memory for this crap. Anyway, so it basically was like that. So that got shot open because they're using assault rifles. Um, so this is kind of where things start going down for Emil and Phillips. Besides the fact they're criminals, they were expecting to get their standard uh, $750 pay. Now, before we go into why they're expecting, so a little thing before, you know, the age of the internet when you can do things like instant checking through your phone or like, you know, take a picture of your check, you'd have to go to the bank, especially with like large deposits and withdrawals. And if you wanted cash for the weekend, cause like credit cards weren't in, like, even though this was the nineties weren't standard or neither were debit cards, you know, to get your money, you weren't, it wasn't easy to get it on the weekend. So you'd often have to do things like make your deposit that day. And because of this, banks would usually have a lot of money on Friday so people can make large withdrawals. Anyway, our two dudes enter expecting that to happen, right? Because of their robberies that they've done, Bank of America, keep in mind they're robbing the same branch uh, brand every time, had only $300,000 around there in there uh phillips was pissed by this he began shooting into the vault emptying all 775 rounds of his magazine into the vault door um and began demand and trying like was demanding like to get access to the atm and other things and asking where the money was now he when he asked for access to the atm you'd think oh yeah that would be smart rob the atm People who work at the bank don't rarely have access to the ATM. And it's kind of because a lot of the crimes that happen around this area, I don't think it was specifically these guys who inspired that, but because of things like bank robberies, they didn't want people robbers to get access to the ATM. So the, they would lock the hostages in the vault and then make their exit. This is where the shit gets real. 
before they entered, they'd left the bank, the police had already showed up. The police were expecting two armed suspects to exit and they had cornered them off successfully. They knew they had high powered rifles. Now, something I didn't mention is they were wearing body armor. They had also taken a sedative that had been prescribed to Emil that, to calm their nerves. It also does things like slows down your blood flow, making it harder for you to bleed out and kind of makes you more pain tolerant. That's going to be important in Grindin's next part. Both men would exit out separate doors and unleash fucking hails of fire onto the police. The police were not ready for this at the time. And like, so I feel like me and you aren't used to seeing police officers not looking like they're ready to invade Iraq. Yeah, no, those cops are absolutely strapped. Cops then, though, were a little different. Most cops didn't have, like, vests that can stop more than a handgun round if they had vests. And they also, you know, um, how do I put this? Their cars weren't really armored. Like, you ever watch a movie and, like, you see the guy hiding behind a car? Yeah. Unless you're hiding behind, like, an old car or, like, a semi-truck, that's probably not going to protect you from bullets. Because most like handgun rounds will punch through the door, while most rifle rounds will punch through like the entire car, um, because it's not exactly like really strong metal. Um, get behind the engine block if you're ever being shot at. So because of this, they the officers were instantly under fire. Uh, yeah, so I you know they're just. No, very few. They had no more than handguns, and they were going up against guys with AK-47. So immediately, several cops were injured upon these guys exiting. So were three civilians. Um, a few civilians would get shot throughout this entire endeavor. Um, at this time, too, there was a dentist across the street who is like that. You know those above-store dentists, like the dentist, second-floor doctors? Yeah, I go to one. Yeah, like the doctor's office who's like above something else. It was yeah. one of these guys. I don't really mean to sound insulting because I'm sure this is fine, but you ever watch The Simpsons? Yes. Quite you know Dr. Nick? Um, I think so. He's like a little bit of a shady doctor. He did. Yeah. Hello, everybody. <laughs> yeah. This guy really reminds me of Dr. Nick, what I see in the interview because he does have the kind of similar accent. But he's a hero, like this doctor, because immediately after these guys start shooting, he would start treating patients. Because most, even dentists or vets, usually have some base level of medical care. Um, yeah. You know, similar understanding. So, like, your dentist generally knows a few things, how like how to stop bleeding and things like that. So, it was really good that this dude was there. Um, so, but let's talk about what the cops were armed with. So, Tyler, what do you think the cops have that could stop this? Um, Not like the SWAT, just like your standard corner right, of the street. The police, they would probably have like their pistol. And yeah, these guys had nine millimeter Beretta pistols. Yeah, they had revolvers because this was still the nineties. Like revolver, you could still find the revolvers amongst police loadouts, especially. So there was two detectives who responded to the scene. Detectives still to this day carry revolvers. I don't know why. It's cool. <laughs> I want to feel like a cowboy. <laughs> I don't know. I, mean, I think it's it's probably just a style thing. Um, and the lucky cops had 12-gauge shotguns. 
nothing they had penetrated their armor and they were trying to aim for their head um but they couldn't because pistols aren't incredibly accurate at long range and neither are shotguns nope um it's like i'm someone who shoots guns regularly and yeah you're not hitting a lot with like movies that bullshit like that like the headshot at like 10 feet away with a handgun oh that's no that's not gonna happen most of the time unless you're like god (laughs) or john wick yeah um so yeah they weren't stopping these dudes um so the initial engagement with the police uh was kind of bad because while this was going on all three die packs which were in the uh bag of money went off at once you know that like meme that's going around TikTok, the oh no, oh no, or like yep. zooms it. I imagine that. Like this is like an incredibly dark moment to imagine that, but I imagine that on Philip's face as his bag of money just became completely ruined. <laughs> yeah. Oh. Uh yeah, that's anyway. So at this point they would retreat back to their car. They were still trying to keep with their plan of escape. Their plan was always to get back to the car and basically shoot their way out. Cause they pretty much realized they could overwhelm the police. The SWAT was on its way there at this time, but kind of just got stuck in LA traffic. And as weird as this sounds, cause this is like the late nineties and you know, there would be the riots that would happen in LA we're also you'd think the SWAT would be really quick to respond, but it also like SWAT was a pretty new idea at this point. Like when I say new, I mean it's something that like had been put into practice but hasn't been perfected yet. Um we'll talk a little bit more later about like our thoughts on SWAT, but like there's a need for SWAT like in this stuff, and it's you can tell like they weren't nobody ever expected like anything this to happen in America. Um so at this point, Emil was shot in the arm and butt. Damn. Um, Phillips also caught a few police officers, including the detectives who I said who arrived on scene, trying to flank them by going through some neighborhoods and like shot at them. Uh, one of the detectives would be wounded by a head, via head wound from flying debris. Emil would get in the car and start the engine. I don't think he could walk really well because he had been hit in like the butt, which despite not actually being quite a bad place to get shot, frankly, because it's mostly just fat or muscle and a lot of veins there. Um, yeah. Phillips was in the shoulder. Uh, then he got hit in his gun. So uh, they were driving for a while and they were kind of like shooting. Phillips was trying to cover Emil and they were driving really slow. Emil was like shooting from the car while driving. It really is like a scene from Grand Theft Auto. So Phillips would get hit in the shoulder. His gun would also get hit, making him switch to a different gun. Because, you know, you can just do that when you have like seven guns with you at all times. Of course. Um, his gu- But this gun kept jamming, so he finally pulled out his fist- pistol until he was hit in his hand. Because like at this point, when like you have the police who are firing a ton of ammunition at you, like the when you're charging that much fire, even if it's small arms, at two guys, there's a lot of bullets flying in that direction. 
Like, I'm amazed there weren't any stories of, like, police accidentally shooting other police just given how much ammunition was being fired by the two sides. Mm. Um, anyway, so Phillips got hit in the hand, and he dropped his gun. At this point, Phillips grabbed the gun, got back up, put the gun under his chin, and fired it, taking his own life. Yikes. I think he kind of decided that they're they weren't getting out of this and he wanted to have the final say in his decision so at this time emil had abandoned their car and was trying to steal another vehicle however they police instantly shot out the tires emil managed to escape no more harm than he already was he came across another group of cars where he'd run into bill maher not that one this guy was just an aerospace engineer and he was trying to get to his job at the airport and had been blocked off by the police, and now Emil was trying to steal his car. Uh, Emil hit the, fired at the man wounding him, and tried to uh, tried to take his car. Um, he'd also tried to break into a house of Dora Lubronsky, who thought he was just an intruder. Because I don't know how you don't hear all this gunfire, and you think, oh, somebody's breaking into my house. So I don't know if the police know about this. I better call. Um, because of this, they thought there was a third gunman and Mar was a mistake, but they didn't shoot or arrest Mar. Mar got out of this, okay? I'm glad to say that. So he then tried to steal Mar's Jeep. Um, now, a problem with this. Mar's Jeep was a stick shift. Emil doesn't know how to drive stick. So the car was pretty much useless. He only got a little far and then couldn't drive it. Uh, at this point, the SWAT team had finally arrived and began shooting at Emil. Um, however, they noticed his legs weren't protected by body armor. So they ordered to shoot at the legs. So all the SWAT team fired with AR 15s for him for, for about, I believe it was two and a half minutes at his legs. Uh, his legs were hit about 20 times. Uh, Emil fell, surrendered and was bleeding out. Um, he would bleed to death and his family actually sued because they believed that police didn't treat him properly, but you have a lot of arteries in your legs. Right. And like, I don't think he would have lived either way. So this had ended the shootout. Um, so some side notes of some stuff I couldn't talk about because it just didn't fit out. I already talked about our doctor who actually has become known as the bulletproof dentist in LA um, and he's kind of like one of these people. They would later kind of put this all in the LA Police Department's uh, museum. Um, the police also sacked a gun store trying to use the weapons to stop them. They got like hunting rifles, but they never ended up using any of these weapons to take them down because these guys just kept moving before the guys who were trying to take the guns from this place, gun store, uh, could ever use them. There was also a news helicopter that was recording all this. And this is actually really cool. This guy was a Vietnam pilot. So when he flew into this, he kind of just like went into instinct and started using evasive maneuvers he'd learned in Vietnam, which I can imagine must have also really sucked for that guy. Cause you can imagine like being a Vietnam vet coming back like, oh man, this is just safe. I just like watch car chases and then there's a dude with an AK 47 shooting at you like oh. a lunatic. <laughs> Damn. Like, fuck, not again. <laughs> yeah. yeah. I watched so before before uh, uh, we got into this. I watched a lot of that helicopter footage. So like as you're describing these events, I'm like, oh yeah, I remember that happening. But it's grainy helicopter footage from 
way up above and all they can do is just zoom in and kind of get an idea of what happened so the guy who's talking over the footage is getting a lot of details wrong because he's just like in the moment he's kind of just like guessing what's happening yeah but what i saw was a was different than what was described but i'm like okay yeah because i i did i didn't know um i it, it it didn't i didn't know that emil was shot and i didn't know that phillips killed himself i thought he i thought phil got shot by the police that's what it looked like in the footage it no it was a suicide I, again there's a lot of like a lot some sources do say phillips was killed by the police but the one that i found it was a suicide and i most definitely believe what was described to us about Phillips, I have no reason to believe he didn't kill himself. Right. That makes sense. Like, it makes a lot of sense, but, like, when you're looking at grainy helicopter footage... <laughs> yeah. Just zoomed in. He, so I want to talk about, like, some of the post-aftermath stuff. Um, so now in the end, up, the only people who were killed were Phillips and Emil. Uh, 350 cops were there. Um they fired 550 rounds of ammunition at the robbers. The robbers fired 1,100 rounds of ammunition. Oh, my God. <laughs> yeah, that's a lot. And this was only 44 minutes long. Like, there's actually a movie about this called 44 Minutes. Um, and it's just, it's insane. Anyway, also Bill Clinton visits the survivors of the shootout. Uh, and some of the police were awarded with, like, medals decorated for surviving this, essentially. Um, and because of this, actually, things like cop cars having bulletproof armor in the doors was put into place, and so were like a cop having a bulletproof uh, AR-15 in their car. Um, in fact, this also is why, like, so the reason SWAT took so long is a lot of SWAT weren't actually working that day. Um, because SWAT does, so now there's a policy one for most police departments, there has to be one SWAT trained officer on duty in the department. Like even my small County, there has to be one SWAT trained police officer on duty. Um, and yeah, that's largely because of this. So now we're going to break down. We're going to kind of go in. So at this point, we're done telling the story of, Larry Phillips and Emil Matarano. Um, and we're going to just talk a little about like what we think of this event. Now we've gone through this ex experience. Is that say like a fun thing? Kind of an experience. <laughs> yeah. So like, what do you think about this as like a whole story? It's really interesting because a lot of what I learned was actually a lot about the aftermath and how the LAPD had to, and also police uh, organizations across the country had to really uh, reevaluate their situation. And as a result, a lot, they've, they've become a lot more uh, militant in a lot of, and they're more prepared to deal with this kind of stuff. And that response makes absolute sense. Yeah. What happened. Like, I feel like some people, like, you know, they're very on the nose. Like, why do cops have MRAPs? Why do cops have tear gas launchers? And, and, like, yeah, that stuff I feel like is very, like, yeah, the police don't need some of this stuff. But then you have people, like, the cops don't need guns or, like, an AR-15 in their car. But, like, they kind of do. Right. Like, what would they have done? Like, if that if that kind of thing happens again, what, what would they do if they didn't? And, yeah. Um. 
a lot of it comes back around to this kind of stuff doesn't really um you have there's there's like a lot, a lot of arguments about the role of police in our society mm-hmm. and I, I don't really need to get in into that but a lot of these problems that we need police for uh are entirely preventable by the fact that if we had i don't know paid a little bit more attention to these kids as they're growing up they probably wouldn't have gone down that path and then here we go we don't well, have you know, this like maybe that. let's make sure that these two guys who have been arrested several times before can't get their hands on guns right but it's, like part of me is also like this might have not been stoppable thing yeah um yeah like i think the police in this story like i'd actually like if we get if this podcast gets like a bit more uh traction and enough people start i'd actually like to revisit this episode with like a police officer to right. get to get it because i like none of neither of us have any expertise in law enforcement no and i also want to preface the fact that i've i'm a new yorker i've been in new york my entire life i've never experienced the lapd i've never been to la so i have no first-hand accounts of how the LAPD has changed or how they currently like I I a lot of my LAPD knowledge comes from uh more recent events so I don't I don't have any handle of LA history um what I do know is with not only my experience with the NYPD but also the history of policing in general so I don't have a lot of specific knowledge about LA um but from what I do know about how this events change policing in general it's kind of insane because in on one hand it was an appropriate response because w- when an event like this happens like okay we got to be prepared for that because that's insane and this shouldn't go down again but Let's keep them like i think we should preface it um because we're going to talk like uh, right now we're just kind of talking about at least there's some other stuff i want to talk about regarding these guys but also columbine happens close around like i forget right so I think there was a lot of events that were forcing police to change the nature of how they operated. Um, and because of that, like, and even today, police still have a lot to change. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, SWAT is a very good, I think, that works as a effective, like, thing for going hard in something you know the situation, but it has yet to be a very effective uh, response to active shooters. I think you're absolutely right. Like preventative measures, like maybe somebody should have taken in, you know, a meal after you waved a chainsaw in his neighbor's face. Right. Like, so I guess now it's like, so I want to preface this next part. Neither of us have any specialty in psychology, but like, what do you think of these two individuals? I think that obviously they're problematic they're criminals but they're also as as i was getting at earlier like these dudes are products of a broken childhood pretty much yeah so Um, there's a lot of bad history with their upbringing and a lot of the stuff a lot of crime just comes from that and it's it's really heartbreaking knowing how people can be uh brought to those lengths because of 
uh, their situations where they're they're growing up. So uh, again, like when what you're saying, like yeah, they when they brought him in for waving a chainsaw, and they never brought no, he wasn't even arrested for that, right? (laughs) Um, But they like more attention needs to be paid to mental health of uh, suspects. Yeah, so this is a really like weird opinion I have, but I kind of feel like these guys were school shooters who made it past school. I can see it. Like, more because they had a grudge against society than anything else. Even though it's never explicitly said, these guys, neither of which were really fond of society or law enforcement, both were loners in their own respects. Neither of them were able to hold a steady relationship. And things talked about, like their obsession with firearms, guns, and other things, really reminded me more about things I've heard about the Columbine shooters as individuals than anything else. Especially just how planned out. Because usually, like, when you have rampages, like, have you heard about that Tread documentary with the guy who built his own tank out of a bulldozer? Uh, I've heard about that situation, and no, I didn't see the documentary. Um, one, we're probably going to talk about that on the podcast at some point. Two, he just kind of be somebody who was pushed to a certain point, but these guys always planned out what they were doing. It was never a spur of the moment thing, or it was never a single event you could say was definitely, oh yeah, these guys become criminals. These guys were just kind of, I'm like, I don't know how to define them, but they, they, they seemed like they were two individuals who were very aware of what they were doing. And I don't even think they knew what their end game was. No, I don't think, I don't think so either. Uh, they're kind of, it, it, it also just seems like uh, at a certain point, I don't even know if it was about the money. They kind of just liked it. It was, yeah, I like, I think it was like, and like, there was a lot of things to say. These dudes liked things like that. I don't know. Like Phillips was a bodybuilder. And he probably loved the adrenaline from doing that. And we went over a meal and like, you know, things like him buying that like motorcycle really ridiculously fast motorcycle. There's like, that's somebody who takes risk in life in life. And he like, I think these are two guys who were always going to end up committing a crime. And unless there was anything intervening, intervening from the very beginning in their lives, they, they were set on this path. Yeah. I think uh, that on that note, <laughs> we're going to end this episode. Anything else you'd like to add in or throw in, Tyler? Um, well, if you're a bully, cut that out because the kid you're bullying hopefully will not be a criminal. Um, uh, if you are being bullied, put down the AK-47. Yes. Don't rob the bank. Help. And if you're going to rob a bank... Please don't rob Bank of America because that's the bank I use. And <laughs> same. <laughs> I don't really kind. Of, I don't feel like getting caught up in that. Oh, but uh, if you are going through some tough times, there's always going to be people willing to help you. There's no need to resort to crime. Or listen to a podcast like this one, <laughs> where two guys talk about stuff, and you realize how much of a jerk you'll seem like when we talk about you too. <laughs> Hopefully, uh, we, we right. will not, will not feature. That is all.